0: To Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history from the battlefields to the home fronts and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
1: I'm Jerry Prokopovich. When you think of the Civil War, you think of battles and campaigns. You think of emancipation and secession and grand political issues, but you got to eat. You got to have warmth. You got to have shelter. This was true of soldiers and civilians in the Civil War, as it is of people today. And in wartime, there was not always enough of everything to go around. When resources run short, who gets them? What happens to political bonds between soldiers and the civilians they're fighting for? We'll find out when we talk to Professor Joan E. Cashin, author of War Stuff, The Struggle for Human and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live
2: Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U E-D-U Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich
1: coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio field headquarters in on the shores of Lake St. Clair, Michigan in Gross Point Shores, Michigan. In fact, 49 Hawthorne Uh, Far from East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, not representing the university or speaking for it, as always, and my guest will, of course, speak for herself, as always is the case here on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, I'm here in Grosse Pointe Shores, uh, far from home uh, temporarily, but actually back home um, to start the show with, uh, unfortunately, the sad news Uh, And this has happened two of the last three weeks now. We've had school shootings. We've had car accidents, all kinds of bad news. I hope this brings our streak to an end. But uh, I do need to report that uh, the number one fan of Civil War talk radio, uh, my mother, passed away this past weekend. And uh, uh, so I'm here at her house with my two brothers, and we are busy deconstructing uh, the... Uh, interior, the, the built environment, as historians might refer to it, and so uh, unable to uh, to be back in Greenville and, and report, but the show must go on from here. Uh, my mother listened to Civil War talk radio with religious fervor from the time the show started uh, back in 2004, and she was always the show's number one fan and uh, number one critic, uh, I will say. After every show at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. Uh, earlier, it was in the afternoon. Some some years ago, it used to be Friday afternoons. But the live show is recorded every Wednesday at 7 p.m. for the last many years. And I could count on the phone, the, the landline phone ringing at 8.01. And mom would be there with her review of that evening's program. If the topic was something Uh, especially military, she would say, well, I didn't care much for the topic. But then she would uh, say the speaker was good, uh, answered all the questions, had a lot to say. Or if the speaker had a vocal tick or an irritating voice, she would let me know. She would compare how I sounded to how the guest sounded. And invariably, 100% of the time I came out on top, which was quite a remarkable string, I think, in in my estimation, Uh, she thought uh, I had a good radio voice. Uh, which I would, I would say I have a good radio face, but that's that's another thing altogether. So she always let me know how uh, things were going, and she would also talk about the show itself. She would sometimes m- mention that she had learned something and uh, was just the number one fan uh, for many years. And in fact, by listening live, that made her anywhere from uh, eight and a half to twenty-five percent of the live listening audience, because most of you are listening. Uh, as a downloaded podcast at your convenience, but she was old school, the show's on at 7 on Wednesday, well that's when it's on. Even if Jeopardy! is on, uh, she will listen to Civil War talk radio exactly when it's live, and uh, only you know a dozen of you normally do that. Uh, out of the 75,000 hits last month, uh, April uh, 2019, I think fewer than 100 were, were live listens. But she was one of them, so that audience has shrunk quite drastically uh, with her departure. let uh, will say another word about her. She was a remarkable person, not just for listening to the show so patiently all those years, uh, but was a, uh, uh, you know, grew up in Detroit, Michigan, uh, where I was born. She went to Commerce High School, Wayne University, now Wayne State University. She was a volunteer ambulance driver during the Second World War. After the war, went to uh, Vienna, Austria, to take a job as a teacher with the State Department to teach the children of military and uh, diplomatic corps uh, workers there. And uh, she never tired of talking about that. That was a formative experience of her life, going to Vienna, And seeing the world, Uh, she said, we lived like kings. To be an American in post-war Europe was a a special time, certainly. And uh, she came home. She was active in politics. She was a precinct delegate. Uh, She attended meetings of the young Dems here in Michigan. At one of them, she met the man who became uh, her husband. Uh, They married in 1957. I was born in 1958. She taught high school uh, for the rest of her working life, most of it at Pershing High School in the Detroit public school system. Retired in the early 80s, and she and dad lived comfortably on their pensions. Uh, Young listeners, ask someone older what that means because that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, And uh, after dad died in 2002, you know, some Wives followed their husbands right to the grave, uh, but Mom was very strong-willed, and she flourished and uh, continued on for the next 17 years living alone. Continued driving until last year. Uh, continued to ride her exercise bike daily, and work a crossword puzzle every day until last year. She became ill at the age of 96, and and for the past 12 months has been slowed down considerably and hasn't been listening to the show this this past season. But hopefully she's listening tonight and has moved on. So next week's show will be Gary Gallagher, editor of Civil War Places, new book from UNC Press, and uh, look forward to talking to Gary, old friend of the show. There will be no live show the following week. I'll be in Gettysburg or Antietam or uh, Manassas or other places with the This Hallowed Ground live tour. Civil War sites. It's sold out this year, uh, but sign up for another one with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. And then uh, uh, back, I think there's a live show on the 29th. I'll have to check that up when I get back to the office. In June, more live shows, but also the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, June 14 through 19. You do not want to miss that if you haven't signed up already. Listeners to the show get a, a discount for doing so. Just tell them you're a listener, they will believe you because anyone who would listen would would not fib about a thing like that. And uh, one couple more things to add to your calendar, I'll be speaking uh, this coming Monday, May 13th in Raleigh, North Carolina at the Civil War Roundtable meets Monday nights at the North Carolina Museum of History. Feel free to come in, say hello, always happy to meet listeners uh, when I'm out speaking. And one last mention, the Civil War Roundtable Congress meets this year, September 20 through 22nd in St. Louis, Missouri. Look it up online, Civil War Roundtable Congress, and learn about how you can make your roundtable function better, draw more, more uh, attention, get more speakers and more uh, members. So lots going on in the Civil War world, as is always the case And you can always find out what's happening on this show from Mark Gaffney at www.impedimentsofwar.org or the Facebook page called Impediments of War. Likewise, Mark runs that as well. See what's happening there and press the PayPal button while you're at the website. Donate to the show's uh, fund for bourbon and cigars, which I don't actually smoke, so it'd be a waste of money to buy them. But perhaps lottery tickets or some other vice uh, there's no guarantee what it, it will be spent on. It's not a tax-deductible charity. Well, let's get on before we run out of the whole evening here and talk to our guest tonight, Professor Joan E. Cashin. She is the uh, author of War Stuff, The Struggle for Human and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War uh, and is, is new to the show but uh, not new to the field at all. It's, it's about time we've had her on. Uh, Professor Cashin, are you there?
3: Yes, I am. I'm delighted to be here. And I just want to say, Jerry, I'm sorry to hear about your mother.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, Well, thank you for coming on here. Um, You are uh, looking at the the back of the book to confirm what is already known, that uh, you are a professor at the Ohio State University. And speaking as a Michigan man, that means it's very difficult to... uh, Uh, to have this conversation this evening, but I think we can both work our way through that, hopefully.
3: Yes, let's just put our differences aside.
1: That seems a reasonable (laughs) thing to do. Uh, Okay. One thing we have in in common, though, is, uh, and this is something I like to remind Civil War Talk Radio listeners at every opportunity, uh, that I studied at Harvard University, and uh, I believe we both had uh, the same advisor, David Herbert Donald.
3: Yes, we did. How interesting! So, uh,
1: the the uh, uh, it it's impossible to to mention uh, Professor Donald without asking uh, for any particular recollection you have of uh, of, of your your uh, endeavors with him.
3: Oh, that that's a big subject. Uh, <laughs> David was a very good advisor, as as I think you you probably agree. Uh, his main message throughout graduate school was that the standards of the profession are very, very important. That, that's, that's where you should keep your focus. The standards of the profession should guide you in everything.
1: Yes, yeah, so and he set an example for that with his, his work and his teaching.
3: He did. He was,
1: a, he was not he only was an excellent scholar,
3: he was an excellent teacher.
1: So what was your uh, dissertation topic with him?
3: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, it was about the migration of uh, slave owners and slaves from the seaboard south to what was then called the southwest, meaning Alabama, Mississippi, and Texas. And that turned into my first book, uh, A Family Venture, which came out in
1: 1991. Hmm. So the... Uh I think I was just I I was there in 1991 in, in Cambridge. I don't know that we, we overlapped. I started in 1986. So so we may have No, oh, we just a missed bit. each
3: other. Yeah, cuz ah. I finished in 1985, so we just missed each okay. other. That's too bad.
1: Uh, oh uh, Yes. Well, it it's um you know, as you said, he he uh, always talked about the standards of the profession, set high bars for us to uh to try to mm-hmm. overcome. But th- th- this book, certainly, uh, the book we're talking about tonight, uh, War Stuff, I-, I think certainly would, would satisfy his uh, criteria. What, uh, what brought you. you to this particular topic?
3: Oh, that's another good question. Well, off and on for years, when I was working on other books and articles, I kept coming across references to the struggles that were going on during the war between armies and civilians. You know, just as there was a struggle between the two armies, there was a parallel struggle going on between armies and noncombatants over material resources, over things like food, uh, timber, uh, the built environment. So I would take notes on it, you know, I would write down these striking or dramatic incidents that I came across. And that's one thing I always tell my own graduate students. If you're working on a project and you come across something that is interesting but maybe not quite on your topic, you should write it down anyway. (laughs) Just write it down because you might be citing it uh, one day in uh, a book or an article. So I'd been collecting information uh, on this topic for a long time, and about ten years ago I realized that I had enough of a foundation here to start working on a book. So the, the result is more stuff.
1: That... Uh is really interesting. It it reflects something I saw in the bibliography that I want to ask you about. Uh, We're going to take a short break first and come back and talk about uh, more about the research and about what what you found about this struggle between soldiers and civilians during the war. Uh, The book's title, as you said, is War Stuff, the Struggle for Human and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War. The author, Joan Cashin. My name is Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts Voiceamerica.com. america.com
2: psych up live with host dr suzanne phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues
0: That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Joan E. Cashin, author of War Stuff the struggle for human and environmental resources in the American Civil War. Uh, we talked in the first segment about where this topic came from and and how this is, in fact, the fruit of other research projects over the past ten years, where uh, Joan, you said you snipped bits here and there and wrote them down, and mm-hmm. eventually you realize you've got enough. As I was looking at the bibliography, I was struck by how many, times you would list a, a uh, an archive a library a place and there would be one collection listed from which you had drawn some material mm-hmm. and I thought that, mm-hmm. that's a funny it's an unusual looking bibliography because normally if you make a research trip somewhere you'll look at a dozen or two dozen uh, uh, you know different folders and files and collections there but mm-hmm. if this is in fact something that you found a spare... That, that, that explains why it looks the way it does. That you found a spare bit here and there, and, and so it's not as if you traveled to California, mm-hmm. looked at one folder, and came home.
3: <laughs> sure. I mean, uh, I also did a, uh, a lot of research when I was giving uh, public history lectures, and mm-hmm. I've given talks at various Civil War roundtables and colleges and historical societies and so on. So, you know, if I was driving to give a talk in Cleveland, Ohio, or uh, uh, Lima, Ohio, or wherever, I would sometimes stop at a local historical society and do research there for half a day uh, before I went on to my destination. Uh, And then there were places like the National Archives. Uh, I did research there for about a month. And I did a deep dive into some of those collections. So I, I spent 10 days reading court-martial records. So that, that's just one line uh in the bibliography, but nonetheless, those uh, documents were very, very uh, useful. The same with the quartermaster records. You know, I spent many days uh, going through those documents. So uh, the bibliography... uh uh does show concentrated research in some places. I uh, did a lot of work at the Library of Congress as well. Uh, UNC Chapel Hill, of course, which has excellent uh, manuscripts. Uh, the Virginia Historical Society in Richmond. So uh, I did research in lots of different places for different time periods.
1: So the the book argues that there was, uh, as you said up front, a real struggle between uh, soldiers and civilians over resources during the war. The mm-hmm. in, in terms of the historiography, you talk about how there are historians on the one hand, like your colleague, Mark Grimsley, who postulates that there are, there are a series of escalating stages of violence mm-hmm. or, or harsh treatment of civilians. or Mark Neely, uh, my predecessor at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne argued that uh, the Civil War is not a total war when you compare it to 20th century wars. You mm-hmm. project a more uh, a harsh harsher view of, of the war. How, how does your work compare mm-hmm. to theirs in terms of your argument? Well,
3: I respect the Accomplishments of Mark Grimsley, Mark Neely, Lisa Brady, you know, a whole host of scholars I cited in the book. But sometimes I disagree with them. And what I found in the course of my research is that when you uh, look at things like food, timber, and housing, what you find is that it is a total war and that both armies are contending to make the maximum use of all resources if they can. And that it starts from the very beginning of the war. So I was interested in behavior. You know, I was interested in conduct out in the field. And, and I make this distinction throughout the war. There's policy, and then there's behavior. <laughs> and those two uh, universes do not intersect very often. Uh, there were uh, policies in place, such as the Articles of War, that prohibited plunder and pillage. They had been in place since 1806, uh, but the Articles did not define plunder or pillage. And out in the field, when you have these massive armies, you know, hundreds of thousands of men, uh, often uh, the privates in the ranks did not stop to think about that issue. You know, when they were hungry and they wanted something to eat, and the rations that came through that day or the day before were not adequate, they would go out hunting for food. So uh, there's there's the world of policy and policy debates and so on, and then there's actual behavior uh, on the ground. Uh, and I also found that even uh, officers, uh, including officers who graduated from West Point, uh, were not always scrupulous about making sure that procedures were followed. Uh, the way that foraging was supposed to work uh, was that uh, an officer would go out with some men, and food would be seized uh, from a civilian, and then paperwork would be given out. And the paperwork was supposed to provide the date, uh, the uh, kind of property taken, the amount taken, and the message to the civilian was that you can get reimbursed at some point in the future for the loss of these goods. But in practice, uh, some officers followed procedure and some did not. Uh, Some of them were very scrupulous and and meticulous and did their best to try to make sure that the company they were in charge of did things according to policy. Some of them were kind of slapdash, kind of hit or miss. Uh, And some of them uh, showed uh, what was to me an astonishing indifference uh, to uh, procedure, so you know. With all due respect to my colleagues, I think when you get into the nitty gritty, when you read the uh, the letters, the diaries, the military correspondence, you find out it, it it's really a very different situation.
1: You make an interesting point that the this, this behavior on the ground of just taking what you need uh, not influenced so much by by policy that. Where where Mark Grimsley, for example, would argue that John Pope's uh, orders mm-hmm. in 1862 resulted in harsher treatment of civilians than soldiers under McClellan would have uh, mm-hmm. meted out. You you argue mm-hmm. that didn't make much difference.
3: that, that is what I found. Uh, although Pope himself, uh, when he issued uh, those orders in July of 62, he also expected. That paperwork would be given out and reimbursement would happen sometime in the future. And Pope realized pretty quickly, within about six months, that things were not working the way that he hoped that they would work. And he said in 1863, the way that his uh, orders had been disregarded was very much to his discredit. You know, he, he thought that, uh, that there should be some constraints on what soldiers are allowed to do out in the field. Uh, but in practice, it, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, but I also want to emphasize that this is something that both armies engage in. You know, this is something that Confederates do and uh, federal troops. And civilians who are uh, politicized in one way or the other, you know, civilians who are strongly pro-Union, We must always remember (laughs) that those people are part of the war, too. You know, there are white Southerners who are pro-Union, and also uh, white Southerners who are pro-Confederate. They both express a lot of surprise and disappointment in the fact that the armies will take their material uh, resources. Uh, And then there are people in the civilian population who are apolitical, and I think scholars have sort of forgotten about that. Uh, that's one thing I tried to emphasize in this book, that there are people out there who are uh, not really interested in politics. Uh, the white men in the family don't vote. Uh, they want to be left alone. They want to just live their own lives without having to deal with any political or military uh, issues. Uh, but they, too, are uh, surprised and disillusioned uh, at the conduct that uh, some of these soldiers are capable of.
1: Well, that, that anticipated uh, very much my next question, which was about uh-huh. whether this was simply a Union phenomenon in the South. But what about the the political leanings of civilians? Did it matter if a Confederate regiment uh, needed food, if if a householder was was an active pro-secessionist, or neutral or even unionist, or, or did, that, did even that go by the board?
3: Well, yes, it does matter, uh, especially early on. Uh, mm-hmm. In the first months of the war, uh, civilians who are uh, highly political are glad to help out. You know, they, they'll, if they're pro-Confederate, they'll invite some rebel officers to come have uh, dinner with them. Uh, and pro-union civilians do that for federal troops, and, and, uh, and they, they volunteer. You know, they will contact an officer saying, we'd love to have you as a guest in our house this evening. But then as civilians begin to realize that these armies have tremendous needs, <laughs> which are not being met, uh, by the quartermasters, you know, the supply lines are, aren't Adequate, or the quality of the food that arrives is, is inedible or unpleasant. And they, they begin to realize that these armies have uh, uh, enormous appetites of every kind. Then, then they begin to pull back. And, and I mean appetites for food, for timber. Uh, they sometimes will take over the built habitat, uh, private homes, barns, et cetera. And, and when they have to choose between their own well-being – And helping out an army, they choose their own well-being. And as the war unfolds and the agricultural economy starts to break down and the war inflicts more and more damage uh, on the infrastructure, uh, civilians start to think that their own survival is on the line. And if they have to choose between their own survival and giving something up to an army, uh, they choose their own survival.
1: So, you know, other writers have written about the use of of harsh treatment of civilians as a, a political mm-hmm. and military tactic, something you intentionally do in order to gain uh-huh. uh, to gain you know an advantage. But uh, when when Amy Taylor was on the show recently talking about the the slave refugee camps that she has written so brilliantly about recently, uh-huh. uh, the phrase "military necessity" appeared in seeming every chapter, almost every paragraph. That's what dictated where the slave refugee camps would be and how the people mm-hmm. would be treated. Uh, it, it seems in your book you're making much of the same argument in a different way that that. Mm-hmm. It's not an intent to intimidate civilians or placate them. It's, it's just military necessity. It seems to drive everything.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, and, and that is a wonderful book uh, that, mm-hmm. that Amy has published, and it's getting a lot of recognition. I'm, I'm really glad to see that. Uh, but uh, I think, as you say, that there is a roughly similar process happening with white people. Although the policy questions are different, and, and I mentioned this at the beginning of my book, uh, that yes. uh, the slaves themselves are deemed to be contraband uh, by such officers as Benjamin Butler. Also, since slaves are not deemed to be property owners, uh, that means if a soldier takes property from a slave, there's no process, there's no recourse, and so on. Uh, plus the fact that there's actually... Been a good deal of scholarship going back to Leon Litwack uh, decades ago on armies and slaves, so I decided mm-hmm. to concentrate on armies and white uh, civilians. But I-, I do agree that military necessity uh, drives a lot of the uh, soldiers' behavior, and that phrase turns up in the primary sources over and over uh, again. Mm-hmm. And it's something that, uh, soldiers believe that they have the right to assert. I mean, they think that their physical needs come first. (laughs) And that, uh, if they haven't gotten enough food, or if they're freezing cold one night, uh, or if, you know, if they have to have shelter, that means that the white civilian has got to give up, uh, whatever, uh, soldiers Decide is necessary for their own comfort or for their own survival. Uh, so that the way that I'm portraying all this is, that in some respects, it's a very primal uh, struggle. Uh, people mm-hmm. in conflict with each other over material resources that they think they have to have uh, to survive.
1: I thought a very interesting characteristic of the book is it's almost uh, an example of post-racial Civil War scholarship in that, as you, you just said a moment ago, you, you chose consciously to concentrate on the effects of war on white civilians in the South and in their interactions with the armies. Uh, not, but it was a conscious decision compared to 50, 80 years ago. An author would write about civil war as if black people mm-hmm. did not exist. Uh you chose right. not to write about black people in this book for the reasons you just gave, but every time you refer to civilians, although you, i I'm
3: sorry you use to interrupt, uh, although to call, I do in mention, in other words, uh, they're not normalized
1: senators. as if all people are civilians are automatically don't need to be qualified. Uh, that white doesn't require a description. You don't normalize them in that sense, but rather simply by saying when white civilians met the army, it's 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 a radical thing to do.
3: Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, although, uh, I do mention black southerners here and there, uh, uh, throughout the book. They, they often witness, uh, these, uh, struggles between white people and, and soldiers, and they occasionally get caught up in it. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that, uh, was, uh, an idea I absorbed years ago in graduate school, in fact. And, you know, when you're talking about southerners, <laughs> Whether it's the Mm -hmm. antebellum period or the war period, that includes white Southerners and black Southerners. (laughs) Uh, And that was uh, also about the time that people stopped using the generic word uh, men to cover Mm -hmm. men and women. So there were uh, many transformations taking place inside of academia in the 70s and 80s that had to do with, uh, as you say, with, with recognizing that these populations are diverse (laughs) and that that, uh, the white Southern experience is not by any means the only uh, experience uh, before the war or during the war. Uh, Although I've published on Black Southerners and my other books, my first book, A Family Venture, many of my articles, and so on.
1: Well, uh, mentioning before the war is something I wanted to talk about, maybe use it as the way of you know, giving some some background or context to what you describe in this book, because you you make the point uh-huh. throughout that the the uh, nor Northerners and Southerners, white and black for that matter, share a lot of values before the Civil War, and a lot of these values uh-huh. are tested and often violated. So we're going to take another break now, but that'll be our topic when we come back. We're talking tonight with Joan Cashin, author of War Stuff, The Struggle for Human and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voice
2: attention if you're a parent educator social worker or civic or religious leader the most important program you'll hear this week is exploited crimes against humanity host opal singleton and her guest
0: that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Joan E. Cashin, author of War Stuff, The Struggle for Human and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War. We've been talking about how Soldiers and civilians alike uh, came to eventually uh, put personal survival ahead of any political or other considerations in their quest to get enough to eat, to get enough fuel, uh, to get enough shelter. Uh, Joan, one of the things that that makes this so interesting is that you juxtapose the the contesting parties during the war to the spirit of communalism and, and stewardship that prevails before the Civil War. Can you talk about those mm-hmm. antebellum values?
3: Uh, sure. Uh, that's something I addressed in the very first chapter, uh, which I called Old South. And that was the argument I made, that inside the white Southern population, there's a strong sense of community, that people are connected to each other, they have some obligations to each other. And also uh, that there's a strong sense of stewardship about material resources, that people have an obligation to make a wise and sensible use of the material resources that uh, they have to have to function, whether we're talking about food, timber, or housing. Uh, and I pointed out that these are not utopian societies, <laughs> that every community has conflict within, jealousy, rivalry, competition, and so on, but that overall, there's this uh, expectation that that people do have uh, obligations to each other. This is the white population, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same with stewardship, you know, that sometimes people do foolish things, they waste uh, resources, they make mistakes, they make blunders, and, and so on. But Uh, that for the most part they agree that they have to take good care of the resources that they have. And this is how these communities function before uh, 1860. But then when the war comes, uh, all that starts to disintegrate. And I also made the point that I believe the same is true for uh, the North. The antebellum North uh, has... uh, a bigger population, but it's still a largely agricultural society. Most people live on farms and, and villages and small towns. And it is the same general set of values that prevail in the antebellum north uh, among uh, the white population. So uh, when the war breaks out, uh, there's a rather abrupt transition in the way that Uh, soldiers and civilians uh, uh, look at resources, whether we're talking about the human resources of a community or whether we're talking about the actual material uh, resources. So it's a transition that happens uh, very quickly when the war breaks out.
1: In terms of stewardship, taking care of resources makes sense, but... Uh, timber mm-hmm. is one of the resources you you devote a whole chapter to which are necessary for yeah. for building shelter for fuel uh, but mm-hmm. aren't the forests unlimited is, is there was that not the view that there were <laughs> all the trees you could
3: ever need? Uh, that is exactly the view that uh, prevails among many uh, white southerners uh, before the war that uh, the region is heavily forested and there will always be enough. Uh, wood out there for everybody. And in fact, it was a custom in a number of antebellum communities for people uh, to chop down the occasional tree, you know, if they needed it, maybe to lift a fence rail here or there, you know, so long as it wasn't uh, a massive theft, (laughs) uh, that people would tolerate that and overlook that because everybody understood that timber is a resource that people have to have to survive. Uh, but when the war breaks out and these great big armies start to move through the region, uh, they begin uh, a process of extensive deforestation. And they practice uh, something that today we call clear-cutting. Uh, that's a term that wasn't coined until the 20th century, but it applies to the practices of both armies uh, during the Civil War. Uh, it means that uh, they take down every tree on a site. So if uh, troops in northern Virginia are planning to build their winter quarters, they take down every tree on a nearby farm. And and these soldiers can uh, uh, deforest an area very, very quickly. And this is true for both armies. And this is something that happens over and over again uh, throughout the war. Uh, And the impact on the physical environment is immediate. Uh, Lots of people talk about uh, how these landscapes are completely transformed. You know, uh, a section of uh, countryside that had rolling hills interspersed with woods and farms is suddenly uh, completely uh, devoid of trees so that it looks like the surface of the moon (laughs) <laughs> All the landscapes are gone, uh, and civilians and soldiers uh, find it uh, disorienting. Uh, they find it uh, physically ugly. You know, they they find these new landscapes to be repellent uh, to look at because it's a complete reversal of what people thought a pleasing landscape looked like uh, before 1860. And also, uh, deforestation creates oceans and oceans of mud, (laughs) mud, M-U-D (laughs) mud, meaning uh, that that, uh, you see these uh, mud baths, these uh, places with uh, deep uh, sinkholes composed of mud, and sometimes you can't identify them until a man or a woman or an animal walks into the mud bath and then just drops out of sight. You know, just disappears. You know, there are documented instances of people who drowned in these deep mud holes. And also, uh, 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 livestock, you know, uh, uh, horses and mules disappear into these mud holes and are never seen again. And also, uh, since the mud is usually moist, uh, that means that it becomes uh, a perfect place for disease. So uh, mud can serve as a disease vector for all kinds of illnesses and bacteria. So it it has an immediate impact on the physical environment and also on uh, the people uh, and also on the animal life.
1: So thinking about mud holes so deep they can swallow a mule, uh, ugly, Mm -hmm. distorted landscapes we haven't talked much about uh, strategic genius or political inspiration or the 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 uh, <laughs> jubilee of emancipation Did, do you see your work as part of the the uh, so-called dark turn in civil war studies or weirding the war
3: <laughs> well that that's a great question uh i guess if i were uh uh, back into a corner and forced answer, I would say yes. Uh, except I, I would also add this caveat. Uh, scholars have been writing about the, uh, uh, dark side of the war, uh, for a long, long time. I mean, way back, uh, Belle mm-hmm. Wiley, uh, for example, Mary Elizabeth Massey, uh, you know, they were describing the, uh, damage that the war did to uh, people and to the environment. I mean, they had different perspectives, obviously, uh, and approached these topics in different ways. Uh, But, you know, Mary Elizabeth Massey did a wonderful book decades ago on refugees. And, you know, refugees, homeless people who are often driven out of their homes, who are in desperate circumstances, who really feel that their survival is at issue. You know, that, too, is a part... Of the war. And I think that, that uh, the dark turn, so called, is not really a new phenomenon. I see it as, as a, uh, a revival in some respects of uh, the work of earlier generations of scholars.
1: Well, the, uh, your book does show these grim things happening, and, and listeners, when you read this book, which you'll want to do, you'll, you'll see that, uh, Joan, you describe how things get, are bad enough in the first several chapters when you talk about food and timber and housing, uh, and then things get worse. Uh, how, how can things get worse?
3: Well, that, that's another excellent question. Uh, I argue that in the last year or so of the war, uh, there, there's really a, a breakdown. That, that's how I title one of the chapters. Uh, that there, there's a, a real breakdown, a complete breakdown in uh, standards of behavior uh, among soldiers uh, and civilians. That it really uh, has turned into uh, a primal uh, shall we say, primordial uh, struggle for survival, uh, and sometimes it seems as if the uh, the physical landscape uh, itself is is coming apart. Uh, people describe these uh, astonishing uh, and surreal uh, incidents that happen with fire, for example, the way that that uh, fire is used uh, to uh, to burn up buildings or sometimes to burn down forests uh, since both armies will sometimes destroy resources to make sure the other army doesn't get it. So they'll deliberately pour food uh, down a well or they'll they'll take a uh, bag of flour and scatter it on the ground and then walk on top of it (laughs) so nobody can eat it. Uh, And they also set fire uh, to these structures uh, that – uh, that burn uh, and, and are visible for for miles and miles in every direction, and the section of that uh, chapter I refer to as the uncanny. Uh, this sense mm-hmm. that soldiers and civilians have that the material resource, uh, the, the the material resources are not only being destroyed, but that the material universe is disintegrating uh, in front of their eyes. You know that, that they're entering into. Uh, a whole new uh, realm of existence where all the antebellum landmarks have been completely obliterated.
0: It is a
1: you know, remarkable uh, thing to see this playing out. Your description of, of buildings burning, of whole towns burning, brings up, uh, mm-hmm. and we have time for one, one last point I want to ask you about. Uh, okay. That... This lives on in, in national memory, certainly in Southern memory, of Sherman burning mm-hmm. uh, towns throughout the South, but your book, uh, from the start, shows how Confederate armies engage in equal proportion to this kind of uh, behavior towards civilians when they need food, when they need shelter or timber, and yet in memory, Southern depredations disappear, and only the Northern ones are, are recalled. What... What do we make of that?
3: <laughs> yes, that, that is very uh, interesting how that works. Uh, and I talk about that in the, the last chapter of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, right after the war ends, uh, white Southerners, uh, regardless of their politics, are willing to admit that both armies uh, harmed uh, civilians, that both armies exploited and destroyed uh, material resources. There's this uh, brief moment that lasts a year or two, maybe, uh, where they admit this in conversation, in writing, uh, talking to journalists, uh, in their diaries, and so on. But then the whole process shifts, and you start to see the creation of the Lost Cause mythology, this notion that uh, if there was any wrongdoing during the war, then it was the Yankee army. You know, if anyone treated, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith badly during the war, burned down their house, took down their fence rails, and stole all their food, then it was always a Yankee, uh, company who did that. Uh, and it's a complete distortion of the historical record, you know, which is very well documented. You know, the, the documentation on all this during the war is overwhelming. So that's the first part of the, uh, lost cause fantasy that, the wrongdoing uh, can be attributed to only one army. And also uh, connected to that is the notion that all white Southerners supported the Confederacy. And that's not true either. You know that, that's And you make that point very clearly. Very
1: well I, just, I want to jump in. Uh, Joan, unfortunately, uh, there is so much more in this book to talk about. We're out of time. You're absolutely right that uh, oh, dear. you show deeply how, how divided the South was. Uh, But to learn about that, listeners, you're going to have to read for yourself War Stuff, The Struggle for Human and Environmental Resources in the American Civil War by Joan E. Cashin, who's been our guest tonight. Joan, I want to say go blue, but I will refrain, but I will say thank you so much for being on the show tonight.
3: (laughs) Well, thank you, Jerry. I really enjoyed it.
1: And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.